You are listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And we have a local writer on the podcast today. Casey Rochdell will be joining us. Casey is a multidisciplinary artist, a writer, an editor, a poet, very esteemed, uh, esteemed writer, and also into visual and sound art as well, which we do talk about. But we talk about how Rochta was the inaugural winner of the Write a House Permanent Residency back in 2014. They were also recently featured on the Beginning, Middle, End Storytime series that we started here at the library, a virtual video local author showcase where they read two pieces of poetry, which we will link to in the show notes. Casey was born on Cape Cod, actually, and grew up in the New England area where they went to college. They are a Callaloo Writers Workshop, Cave Canham, and Breadloaf Writers Conference Fellow and a former writer in residence at Inside Out Literary Arts here in Detroit. And we also talk about how they have become really immersed in Detroit, how Casey has really come to call this place home after spending six years here. We talk about some of Casey's most formative moments as a writer and her experiences in slam poetry. We talk about the process of developing a voice through poetry We talk about a fun title that they self-applied, the Historian from the Future title, which was started out as a joke, but I think actually kind of fits as a great descriptor. Casey Rushto's most recent collection of poetry is called The Dozen. It was released on Sibling Rivalry Press in 2016, and their writing has appeared in esteemed publications like the American Academy of Poets, The Offing, Lit Hub, and many other places including the Barnes and Noble review. Casey actually has quite a kind of almost supernatural anecdote to share that involves Barnes and Noble, which we'll get to in our chat. This is Casey Rushtow. start at the start by just saying how young were you when you realized you know uh, I'm a writer and were there some formative moments for you in that regard I think a few things there's like a few different stages right when I was really young I loved writing stories and I wrote I, I wrote my first novel when I was like eight uh, which was just like me scribbling on a yellow legal pad um <laughs> And it was a story about these three girls who were chasing vampires. That's great. I know. And I am upset because I'm like, you know, here's the thing. It's like that was like 95, uh-huh. maybe. Or, well, no, it would have been a little earlier. But still, I'm just like, I could have gotten in on Twilight. You, you know, like, I <laughs> my career could have been different. Yeah, I think like that was one thing. And I always loved to write as a kid. I was in this sort of like after school program called Odyssey of the Mind. Oh, I'm familiar. Okay, yeah. I, I Some people know about it, some people don't, but it, it's just definitely, when I was a kid, it was always like, uh, I was on a team with seven other kids, and uh, they always wanted to be the actors in the skit, and I was just like, no, no, no. Give me, I'm going to write the whole script, and I want to do the soundtrack. That's it. That's what I want. <laughs> I can't tell you, Casey, how parallel our experiences were. I was in uh, Odyssey of the Mind, and we, I had uh, actory people in my little group, and I just wanted to write. 
Yeah, I, I, think, I think that actually makes for a good balance for <laughs> that particular sort of situation, right? It's right. like somebody needs to want that and right. not want to be on stage. <laughs> that's the that's another side of your creative side, though, the musical side, too. We didn't even touch on that. Oh, true, true, true. And I, I really, I enjoyed that as a young person. And I... I think, you know, like I read Little Women when I was in fourth grade and I remember, you know, like Joe March, obviously that's her whole world wants to be a writer. So for me, I always loved the story about how I think that maybe I'm like, I don't know if that's where I got the idea of um, writing a story about vampires, but that's how she started is under a a pen name that looked male writing little vampire stories. So there was all that stuff. And I think... When I got to high school, I was still writing. I started a novel when I was probably about 16 and my computer inevitably ate it. And it was before we all sort of had cloud access to everything. So it was just gone. Mm -hmm. But I really started writing poetry more when I was like in my late teens. And then when I... The first time I read a poem out loud was actually at my dad's funeral when I was 17. And... Yeah, which is kind of like a heady experience, but it did, I think for me, it it opened up this door of understanding that I have some some sort of gift that allows me to be the kind of person where in a situation like that, I can at least temporarily provide some kind of comfort to other people. That's powerful. It is. And it's, you know, it's like... Not the not always the most fun calling, yeah. <laughs> but you know it, it is very much. I don't know. It's something that I've always sort of like taken very seriously. And when I got to college, I went to Hampshire College, which is in Western Mass, and it's a like hippie liberal arts school, like private college. So also they didn't have an endowment, so like seventy percent of the people on campus were paying full tuition, which was already super high. Wow. Which meant I went to college with like a bunch of very, very privileged liberal white kids. Okay. And my first week there, we did orientation. The orientation group I signed up for was slam poetry themed, and I didn't know what that meant at the time. And then our two orientation leaders were, you know, like have us watch Slam Nation and sort of like get a lay of the land. And that's when I was like, oh, I could do that. That seems fun. And I so I started sort of taking it more seriously, reading at the open mics weekly. And after my first year, I the two people who had sort of like brought me in like through that orientation group were graduating and they handed me the keys to the kingdom. And so I would like ran that open mic in the slam scene at Hampshire for the next three years. And so we started going to what is called Cupsy, which is like the college level national slam. And yeah, it was, a uh, it became my life for a little while. Some of that I have to ask about performance and mm-hmm. being in front of people, because when we think of, the general writer. We usually think the instantaneously think novelist and novelists, uh, unless they're doing like a book signing, don't usually have to perform in front of people. But when we think of poet, we often think of performance and we often think of, well, I'm speaking for myself, but there's that sort of ingrained image of like the beat poet with the goatee in the coffee shop, you know, but 
talk about getting exactly. So talk about <laughs> talk about uh, how I guess you know because for me I took until my 20s until I was ever comfortable in being in front of people. Did you have any struggle there? Did you have to get over something with that? Were you natural? What was that? No, I um, I love attention. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you're as much as you know, like when I was a kid, I didn't want to act in the plays. I don't, uh, I don't love pretending to be somebody else, but I do like, I like being in front of an audience and sort of like, it's a, it's this of a, a funny way of having a conversation. Yeah. Is yeah. how I think about it. You know, like you can feel their energy if they're with you, if they're not with you. And then if they're not with you, you got to like fight against it. And I think I probably wasn't as comfortable at first. I think part of it is with slam. There's like so many sort of dynamics that go into like acting things out and like this dynamic range of what you can do with your voice mm-hmm. in the slam poem. Mm-hmm. My first sort of like, poem that would really get people riled up in slams was this like (laughs) it was a poem that i had written every year on valentine's day we had this erotic open mic and because it was this weirdo art school all kinds of wild stuff would happen at these open mics you know like (laughs) somebody would get up and just like eat an orange with the rind on it and then an onion and then a banana and like that was their piece (laughs) because Why not? Um, But I had written this poem that was, it was an erotic poem about riding a rhino, literally, you know, like off into the sunset. Uh And people went up for it. And it became this thing of after that first year at Hampshire, people knew me as, oh, yeah, you had that rhino poem. There's still like old school slam people that still, that's how they know me. And I'm just like, ah! Wow. mortified that's like your first hit single truly mm-hmm. truly and i wish it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> that's but so cool though yeah um, and yeah and, yeah. For, and if anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know slam poetry i think that a good connection is to me it doesn't seem like it it seems like it's connected in a way or sort of sort of shares the same dna as almost like rap battling you really have to be up for this right yeah i would say so yeah. and i think you know uh the spiel they they give at the beginning of every slam is like it was invented in the 90s by this poet named mark smith who was a carpenter and it really what it was is spoken word definitely existed before slam but slam is a bar sport Oh, okay, is, right on. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I've always thought of it. And I think we see a lot of, I, I think it's probably almost, I don't want to say most impactful, but for me, when I watch uh, often, I'm most struck by like youth performing it. Right but the way that it started was really just as a way of getting people to engage with poetry in spaces where they weren't normally going to do that. Right. And so the way to do that was to make it a competition. And so they're individual, like, you know, like you're slamming against one other individual and then there are team slams where like more of the sort of sports dynamics come into it. Like, okay, like you have to go second because that's going to change the crowd and we're going to. And and it's my favorite part of slam poetry is that it's being judged by five random people off Mm -hmm. the street. And I that feels so it feels right to me in this one way. And I know uh, anyone who's ever slammed knows that it is, they're the most infuriating people in the world judges. Cause they don't know what, what good poetry is, but they know what affects them. And like that's, and they will tell you immediately after you're done reading. Right. So yeah, that, that always, uh, I was never really about, I didn't care. 
I've never really cared about the scores, <laughs> but I did always find it very funny when people would get upset that they didn't score as high as they thought they should. It's, a, it's, it's a just sport. A, it's it's poems. Like yeah. you're not, you know what I mean? Like you're not going for the Heisman Trophy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about um, some of the writers and authors and poets or anyone that really kind of turned you on when you were uh, young and expanded your mind and got you just excited about words. Did you have uh, rock star writers that you kind of looked up to? I mean, when I was a kid, I think I didn't have, sometimes I didn't have access to certain poetry it's that i didn't have access to people who knew an expanse or like were teaching an expanse poetry right mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so like encountered certain things in school like you know walt Whitman and emily dickinson yeah but got really into the beats for a minute in high school i think i stole every single book jack kerouac ever wrote huh? from from the barnes and noble in my hometown and like through that, got into Allen Ginsberg. And then uh, speaking of that Barnes and Noble, actually, this happened there. So one time I was in Barnes and Noble with uh, my partner at the time. And we were standing in front of the poetry section and just like not knowing like what should we what should we get? You know what I mean? Like and this dude, older guy kind of like wandered over, put something back down on the shelf and looked at us. And this man looked exactly like Charles Bukowski, like down to the mole. Uh. <laughs> and I think it was after Charles Bukowski had already passed. So it was just sort of like, did what is happening? Mm-hmm. And so he had just put a book back and he goes, now this is, this is good stuff. This is what you need to be reading. And we looked and it was Pablo Neruda's The Captain's Verses. And so I immediately bought that book. It was just like, well, Charles Bukowski told me to read Pablo Neruda. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> And I think that that was the first, for me, understanding of sort of the broader scope of what poetry could do. Right on. Yeah. 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 But so let's talk about poetry, because you mentioned some staples like like Walt Whitman. And then there's some other folks out there like Emily Dickinson. And I feel like those are very ruminative people. Like, I feel like, well, I mean, obviously Dickinson was probably staying place in her attic, but those are people who kind of look out at nature and they just reflect. And I'm not discounting them at all, but you have such a, a such a more daring and adventurous style with your writing. I wondered how you how you got there beyond just the museful, reflective poetry and sort of the well, uh, you, you call yourself a historian from the future. So I wanted to talk about that and, and how it plays into the words you want to use. I think for me, coming out of slam, you kind of have to build that bravado right of some sort in some way. And I wasn't always like the screamiest slam poet for sure. I wasn't even a particularly successful slam poet. <laughs> I, I But I did find my voice i think part of it is also like hosting a a series where every week i'm just sort of trying to keep the show moving a lot of it is that i I sort of fine-tune uh banter Mm -hmm. with an audience and i think that some of that sort of seeped into the poems i think for me it's also when i'm writing i will think of something wild put it down on the page and then like go back to read it in front of an audience later on sometimes i'm like what the Excuse me, okay. but but you know it was just like, I, what did I, I wrote this down and then now I'm saying it out loud? Why? I, I've I've caught myself by surprise during readings before. Um, nice. 
I really have. And I think, you know, part of it is watching people like Rachel McKibbins, Patricia Smith, uh, in my earlier slam days, it just demolish. Mm -hmm. And also the way, like Rachel's somebody who has always been iconic in that way. Mm Because it's not always a super loud poem, but it is always just going to eviscerate you. Right. And Patricia, Patricia's just incredible. Right. Her, because she, so she started in in Boston, which is, you know, where I was my first sort of like adult slam home outside of college, uh, the Cantab Lounge. And she just had this ability to, I, I remember seeing her perform this poem skinhead for the first time mm-hmm. where she takes on the persona of this skinhead. And I was just like, I don't know what that is, but I want to do that. <laughs> I want to be able to do that to an audience. Right. Where you can have the freedom be- to become a character when it's suited for the, the impact of the emotion, of the poem. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, like then when she went on and, and wrote blood dazzler, seeing her perform those poems. I mean, like seeing her perform those poems, seeing those poems written, that book I think really blew my mind. It, it, it I, I don't think I've ever seen a project. So I don't know. Um, I, I find that it's, it's hard for most people to so completely empathize or understand a situation that they weren't personally like there for. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like she understood the situation. She had, you know what I mean? In this way of the, both the emotional devastation of Katrina and also who the people were who had died. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So for me, those are the kinds of uh, those two pillars of the slam community, I think definitely sort of blazed a path for me to be able to sort of like open new avenues for my, in my own writing. Yeah. And it's funny that you brought up historian from the future that came out of a joke that I used to play on my, well, not play on, but like I used to uh, do this thing to my roommates where they would be like, Oh, well, you know, like, you know, like this, this is happening and, da, 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 da. and I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess, yeah, you could look at it that way, but you know, I'm from the future. So I just see it differently. <laughs> and my one, my, I had one friend in particular who hated it when I did this because he was never quite sure if I was telling the truth. <laughs> I feel like it, it really fit though for the, the poems that I actually asked and you graciously performed for our video. I feel I feel like that that title, Historian from the Future, really fit the energy that you're bringing on those poems. But we can't reduce you to just two poems. But I think that I do love that energy that you bring. I think there is a very I think you're able to get outside of a box, outside of all the boxes and really just give us a really fresh look at things. I think you're really great at that. So I well, think thank you. I, I appreciate that. People have to. But also people have to realize that. That takes time, right? I mean, you're not, it's, I think when people think about, I feel like I'm talking about people who have general misconceptions about poetry all day on this podcast. Here's what people (laughs) get wrong. But, uh, you know, poetry isn't always just this free form from the gut kind of thing. You, You have to sit with these things for a long time, just as she would have to sit with that poem about Katrina. There's a lot of emotion that goes into this. Oh, absolutely. A lot of emotion and also 
you know, n- nothing's going to come out right on the first try. And I'm somebody who I probably like editing more than I like the actual writing process. Right because on. when I first get things out, I'm doing so much sort of self-editing in my mind, like so much going in with the, the backspace button being like, no, those two words don't belong together or whatever. And I, I like to let things marinate, you know, yeah. I like to come back and look at it with a fresh perspective. I think of it as like when you play video games, you just can't beat a level and you're just trying for like hours to like beat one boss. Right. And like you go do something else for a couple hours, you come back and you just like demolish when you go back in. Mm -hmm. You just have to sort of like get yourself into a different brain space to be able to like do the thing effectively. I like Persona in I like persona, but I also like sort of the ability to make the eye of a poem something very different than we're maybe accustomed to seeing. Yeah. Right. Where it's just like, okay, maybe in somebody else's poems, like right. the eye can be one version of themselves that is, you know, ruminating, walking through the wilderness, coming upon some animal feathers, whatever the poem is, you right. know? And I'm like, okay, well, if that's what we're doing in, in, these sort of first person poems, then I can be anybody, you know, I can be Sun Ra, I can be the radio, I can be a historian from the future. Yeah, I find a lot of freedom when I do that, because it then allows me to at least imagine that I'm writing outside of myself. Like, this is not actually me saying these things. So I can kind of, it opens it up to say a lot more. Right on. I had uh, a couple of questions that I was going to throw at you in in succession, and I don't know in which order to ask them. So I'm going to kind of ask them at the same time. (laughs) Okay. I obviously wanted to ask how you wound up coming here to Detroit. And then I wanted to also ask about comparing life in Detroit back to back home with Cape Cod. So I'm just kind of throwing them both at you. Sure. So I moved to Detroit on October 31st. So Halloween, 2014, I moved here. I had been living in Brooklyn at the time. Okay. I had finished grad school and I had applied for this program called write a house. And I hadn't really thought much of it. Um, once I, when I heard the initial pitch of what the program was Mm -hmm. it was like oh we're giving houses away to writers in detroit and i was like excuse me (laughs) you're doing what now (laughs) that has to be a scam and then i go and i look and i'm you know i see these two white people who are both sort of new yorkers uh running it and i'm like no this is definitely some kind of gentrification scheme right uh and then era d matthews who lived in detroit for a really long time black poet um incredible poet had posted on her Facebook, you know, I actually know these people and I trust them. And I really think people should be applying for this. Come be my neighbor. And I was like, all right, you know, okay. If you say it's cool, I believe you. And so I applied not thinking I would ever get it. And I was at Kalaloo when I applied, which meant I was in Providence um, for two weeks doing this sort of intensive writing workshop. And one week you're with Vivi Francis and the other week you're with Greg Pardlow. And Vivi, of course, is from Detroit. And so it just like felt aligned in a certain way. And I applied on a whim, went the summer, worked at a summer camp in Western Mass, found out that I was a finalist. And by the time I got back to New York, I had won. And then I was like, oh, how? Okay, (laughs) damn. (laughs) I guess I got to move to Detroit now. So I've been here about six years uh, living in the same house. And I at first was very nervous and felt like 
Oh, anytime I do a reading now, I gotta read some house winning worthy shit. <laughs> that's gonna be the, you know what I mean? Like I gotta, I gotta prove that I deserve this. Right. That's kind of crazy. You're living in the thing that you're writing sort of won you. That's right. Crazy. Yeah. It, it's a wild thing. It's a wild yeah. thing to think about. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, it, I'm incredibly grateful for it yeah. every day. And uh, as far as differences between Cape Cod and Detroit, yeah. whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Let me count the ways. Indeed. Um, I mean, you're, you, but you also just have this real thick, like New England experience, just in general, Massachusetts and all that kind of stuff. True, so, true. You know, yeah, because I went to school in Western Mass, yeah. lived in Boston for a bunch of years, lived in Providence for a while. Right. I uh, very New England. I, Deeply New England. Yeah. For most of my life, I lived in New England. And so I wasn't really sure. I think part of it, right, is that I know just from traveling, like the West Coast is maybe not for me. I'm such a like such a deep mass hole in a particular kind of way where I'm like, look, if we are having a conversation and I feel like you are just not saying something, I'm going to pick up on it right away. And I don't understand why you're not just yeah. saying it to me. Right. Yeah. In the Midwest, I wasn't, you know, I'd spent a good deal of time in Chicago, but it, overall I hadn't been through the Midwest a ton and really just had that sort of like, I have a friend who calls it that that icy, nicey Midwestern thing. Uh, bless your heart kind of thing. And so I wasn't sure what to expect. And there is this weird, as, as dissimilar as Boston and Detroit are as cities, they are both places where people value authenticity. Right on. Yeah. And, you know, like are not are very upfront yeah. with how they feel. Yeah. I think the big difference for me is that like a place like Boston, if you are on public transit, you don't make eye contact with other people you don't know unless you want to fight. And, <laughs> and here it's just like if you don't make eye contact with an elder and say hello, you might you might get your ass beat. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not that deep, but it is much friendlier here in that sense. Yeah. And I think that's the the energy, especially I mean. It hasn't changed all that much, but yeah. since I've moved here, I think probably for the last 20 years, there's a, a real deeply small town feel to the community here in Detroit. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody. And if you don't know somebody, you know their cousin. Yeah. You know, here in the Ferndale Library, we, we have our big poetry section. And anytime we have a Michigan writer or a Detroit writer, we put a little little sticker on the, on the side. It's like a little picture of Michigan's mitten and it says local author. And so that's on the spine of a book like The Dozen, which I picked up. And I picked up and read The Dozen without actually knowing that you'd only been here for four, five, six years. And I was reading The Dozen just thinking, they're an awesome poet and I'm so glad they're here in Detroit. And I don't know what this means, but I was like, yeah, they are They're. How do I want to say this? It felt like you fit here in Detroit. It felt like you were a Detroiter. When I learned you were only a Detroiter for six years, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of jarring. It feels like feels like they've always been here. I don't know what that means, but. You know, I don't either, but I, I spiritually feel that. You know that's, what I mean? Like yeah. there's there's a, I think if after two years, honestly, after the first three months when I was here and my neighbor's house got burnt to the ground. <laughs> Right. Like if that if that had scared me off, <laughs> I don't think I was meant to be here. Yeah. But instead, I kind of so took it in and was like, well, OK, I guess this is how it's going to be. <laughs> and I, I've never felt so I've never lived anywhere else where I felt like, yeah, 
no, I could be here for a real, real long while. Um, it it makes sense to me. Detroit makes sense to me, even though like, there's a lot of things that happen in Detroit where I'm like, this don't make no kind of sense. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's a lot of Detroiters who say that too. Oh, absolutely. But I think that that's, that's the gag. Like that's what, you know, like when, when we see the video where it's, you know, people doing donuts on the lodge and just hollering, we on the lodge with it. Everybody understands like this is reckless and crazy, but also so very Detroit, <laughs> so deeply Detroit. And I, I love, uh, I really love the city. I love the people right. in it. And I'm, I, I remember this was years ago, actually. It's probably like maybe my second or third year in the city. Mm-hmm. I was in a lift and my driver was talking to me. And he was like, oh, yeah, you have a real thick Detroit accent. And I was like, what? How is that? <laughs> Literally, how is that possible? See what I mean? I was picking up on it, too. <laughs> I don't know what it was. It, maybe it is a spiritual thing. So Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it, 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 it might be. Yeah. It might be. <laughs> well, Casey, my last question would be maybe a little harder, maybe a little easier. And it's obviously this has been the probably the hardest year in existence for anybody and probably especially for creative people. And you are not just a poet. You are into music. You're into other forms of writing. You are into editing. Can you talk about kind of just working through this and uh, whether or not this whole experience of the quarantine and all of this and everything that's happened has really impacted your creative process at all, your approach to your work? And have you found, I guess, have you found, I really wish I had a other word, better than workaround, but a way to just keep your concentration. No. Yeah. And I, th- I think that that's true for almost every writer I know. Yeah. It's been very hard to write. It's been hard to read. It's hard to focus. And I think for me, you know, I work, I work like a regular nine to five and I work for the Detroit Justice Center, which is an abolitionist law firm. And my, the bulk of my time working is spent dealing with things like, you know, white supremacist trolls and trying to get the word out about protests and trying to inform people about, you know, like how much money we're actually spending on the police, that kind of thing. And so for me, a lot of my creative energy has gone into that work. That's mm-hmm. and That feels like a space where I can pour into because it feels useful in this right. moment right. to actually be able to do things like getting rapid response funding to formerly incarcerated people. Just like the stuff that DJC is able to do in in this particular moment is really what I feel like I can do. You know what I mean? Like that's almost like I, I feel like I have to be able to do something to feel useful or else then not only will I not be able to focus, but then I'm just like lost floating in space. Right. Yeah. And, and I think people need to hear this, and I think especially creative people need to hear this. And if we are in this crazy, crazy time and we put down our creative craft for a while, why should we panic if we're still, if we could still find something else to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's also at this point, it's, I think a lot of folks feel like, what is there to say right now? Right. And anything that I say today could change tomorrow because of how rapidly things are changing. So for me, I've been doing the sort of creative outlets that I do have the little things um, are very different than what I'm normally doing. I'm not even I'm not making music right now, although I've been thinking about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I, like started a podcast with my friend to talk about apocalyptic media. What's it called? It is called Shook of Revelations. Right on. Uh, Yeah. Um, and, And so it's like dealing with this moment, but not directly. You know, it's like very different when you can talk about Thunderdome or Snowpiercer and like not really have to unpack like all of the crazy stuff that's happened this week kind of thing. Right. 
I've been doing like little silly projects. There's this um, Japanese soda that is called Ramune. And so the bottle, you can get it at like sushi spots. It has this little top where you have to like push down a marble to like be able to actually drink the drink. <laughs> I don't know how to ex- describe this. If you know what I'm talking about, you'll know, you'll understand it. But otherwise, you'd have to look it up. But um, the bottles look like little aliens. Like they have these two indentations, and so they look like big alien eyes. And I was just like, you know what? Well, let's just make puppets. Let's just make puppets out of these bottles. Let's just do something that is like fun and mindless. And like maybe I'll do videos with them later on. But for right now, I've just uh, like, that's what I've been doing. You know, it's just like, I still need a creative outlet, but I don't, anything that I have to like super intensely focus on is a, a little bit sort of out of my periphery. And at this point, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm really okay with that. Yeah. And I think other creatives need to hear that. I What was the name of the soda? Uh, Remune. Okay, great. We should put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> maybe we'll find a YouTube clip of the weird marble opening trick, but... Casey Rochdo, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Always good talking to you. And you've kind of helped me settle all my crazy thoughts and relax a bit and think about the world differently. And your poetry has really impacted me and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's so sweet of you to say. And that was our chat with Casey Rauschtow, writer, but multifaceted artist, talking about the important work being done at the Detroit Justice Center at this time. Casey is the author of two published collections of poetry, along with The Dozen, which we mentioned at the intro. There's another collection called Knocked Up on Yes. Casey was recently featured in the Ferndale Library video story time, beginning, middle, end, which we will link to in the show notes. You can find it on the YouTube channel of the Ferndale Area District Library. And this is the Ferndale Area District Library's podcast called A Little Too Quiet. My name is Jeff Milo, and we produce this podcast in-house here at the Ferndale Library. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And if you want to support this podcast, you can just go to ferndalefriends.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>